our church's purpose statement is helping people to journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this being our church's purpose statement, we don't measure success as a church merely by the number of people that we have attending our uh, services or our ministry events. We measure success by the movement that we generate in the lives of people from the brokenness of sin to wholeness in Christ. And I believe it was uh, uh, four or five weeks ago, we spent some time looking at the first point of the journey from brokenness to wholeness, and that is what we would call conversion or gospel conversion, which is when a person is born again into the family of God and converted to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So conversion is the starting point of this journey from brokenness to wholeness, but it's not the only point of the journey. Once converted to Christ, a second critical point in this journey is what we would call gospel centrality, and that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, gospel centrality. And to address this topic appropriately this morning, I need to start off by uh, providing you with a couple definitions that you will see on your notes if you have a hard copy of them. Uh, first of all, let me define what we mean by gospel. The gospel is the good news of all that God has done to bring us salvation through Christ, which includes the news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and the news of every blessing that comes to those who believe in Christ, whether that's present blessing or future uh, blessing. If that's essentially what the gospel is, what is gospel centrality? Well, it's keeping the good news of Jesus Christ at the center of one's focus, maintaining its place of first importance in one's life, learning to think gospel and reason from the gospel to every area of life. So based on those definitions, let me have you do in a, a little exercise that we always have people in our membership class do. Um, if you're taking notes, take out a pen or a pencil and draw a circle anywhere on the page. And then imagine that that circle represents the gospel. That circle represents the sum total of every gospel truth that is presented in Scripture, the historical facts of the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, along with all the gospel blessings that come to those who believe in Christ. The blessings of freedom and power and love and justification and adoption, relationship with God, fullness of joy, abundant life, membership in Christ's church, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and eternal glory with God in heaven. Imagine that that circle contains and represents uh, every promise and every imaginable comfort and consolation in the gospel. Imagine that this circle also represents the sum total of not just every gospel truth, but all of the ramifications of those gospel truths along with the applications of all those ramifications to every area of life. Now, here's the exercise for you. Here's my question. On the day of your conversion, how much of that circle did you understand? Go ahead with your pen or pencil and just carve out how much of that circle you understood on the day of your conversion. And if you are like me, you did not mark out more than 5% of that circle, right? And this fact alone shows the insanity of ceasing to preach the gospel to people 
after they are converted to Christ. Once someone believes in Jesus for the very first time, that person should not be assumed to be completely evangelized. The gospel is bigger and it's far more grandiose than anyone could possibly understand on the day of their conversion, right? But oftentimes in many churches, what we do is we evangelize someone until the moment that they get converted and then we put the gospel down and we stop evangelizing them and then we essentially say to them, okay, now that you are saved, let's give you the rules that you need to live by. And then we leave people trying to live the Christian life with an insufficient and very partial understanding of the gospel. And as most of us know, that doesn't work, right? This is the reason that uh, we believe that one of the biggest problems plaguing the church today is that our churches are filled with under-evangelized people. Jerry Bridges speaks to this reality when he says, and I quote, the reality of present-day Christendom is that most professing Christians actually know very little of the gospel, let alone understand its implications for their day-to-day lives. My perception, he says, is that most of them know just enough gospel to get inside the door of the kingdom They know nothing of the unsearchable riches of Christ, unquote. That's sadly true. And on many levels, I would have to tell you that this is my confession as well. After my conversion to Christ, I immediately set about to trying to keep the rules and live the Christian life, but I was trying to do so with an insufficient understanding of the gospel, and a very legalistic understanding of God. My problem was that though I knew how to get saved through the instrumentality of the gospel, I didn't understand the mechanics of how to live in the good of the gospel each day. And so I found myself trying to do this sanctification thing when I didn't really understand the gospel. In fact, let me get really specific here and describe for you some specific indications that I was trying to live the Christian life while not being sufficiently evangelized. Just let me, let me read some of these to you. On a gut level, this is after conversion, on a gut level, I would think that God was cold and distant toward me after I sinned and came back into his presence to seek his forgiveness. On a gut level, I felt like God was often fed up with forgiving me. On a gut level, I felt like God was very difficult to please. On a gut level, I still felt like there was some wrath in the heart of God against me that I still needed to bear as a Christian. On a gut level, I felt that my standing before God was dictated by my performance. On my bad days, I felt that I had fallen out of his favor. But on my good days, I felt more worthy of my standing before God. By my actions and choices, I have often demonstrated a belief that sometimes sin is better for me than God is. I have harbored bitterness in my heart against someone who has wronged me, feeling justified and holding a grudge against them, forgetting all the while God's forgiveness of me for worse sins that I have committed against him. I have disregarded prohibitions from God because I have thought less than the best about the heart of God from whom those prohibitions have come. My actions have indicated in given moments that I believed that sin is more powerful than Christ 
and that I have no choice but to give in to sin. I have sometimes been offended by my painful circumstances, feeling that I deserved better than what I was being given by God. I have sometimes fretted over my circumstances, doubting that they would truly work out for my ultimate good and God's ultimate glory. And I have oftentimes depended on my performance to be what commends me to God rather than resting solely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Any of those ring any bells? This is just a partial list that reveals a lack of comprehension of some important gospel truth at any given moment of my life, and some of these things still persist in me, sadly. And to the degree that such misunderstandings persist in me, they serve as indications that I am not yet fully evangelized and that I am not yet fully calibrated and centered on the gospel. The goal of gospel centrality is a lifelong pursuit for me and for all of us, partly because the gospel is so counterintuitive to our natural way of thinking, even after we become Christians. And if we're honest, we'll recognize this. As Michael Horton says, and I quote, to the extent that we as Christians remain pilgrims in this life, the gospel will remain strange even to us. Until the day we die, we will struggle to believe the good news that God announces to us in the gospel. Timothy Keller says it this way, the gospel is not easily comprehended. All of us, to some degree, live around the truth of the gospel, but do not get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. Michael Horton and Timothy Keller are right, I believe. And this is why we say that after a person is converted to Christ through the gospel, he needs to move on from there to being centered on that gospel. This is a step that takes a lifetime, but it is a step that we want to help you with here at Cornerstone. It is our belief that the gospel is not simply the means by which a person is converted, but that once converted, the gospel is to be our daily food, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, our daily bath water, Ephesians 5, 26, our daily meditation, Colossians 3.16, the ground that we stand on, Colossians 1.23, and the armor that we wear, Ephesians 6. Here at Cornerstone, we don't just wish to be converted to Christ through the gospel. Once saved, we wish to eat, drink, and sleep gospel and to help you to get into the gospel and live in the good of the gospel each day. We learn this mindset from the Apostle Paul. In fact, look at the kind of language that Paul uses when talking about himself in connection with the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. It's easy to find. In this verse, Paul speaks of himself, and he says literally these words, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart, literally, into the gospel of God. That's literally what he's saying there. Called as an apostle, set apart into the gospel of God. I love that phrase, into the gospel of God. In the mind of Paul, he was not simply saved through the gospel, 
but he was saved into the gospel. So Paul would happily say that the gospel is not simply something that you are saved through, but that it is something that you're saved into. It is to be the air that you breathe, the garden that you live in, the water that you swim in, and the house that you dwell in. Once you are saved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be the one great permanent circumstance in which you live and move and have your being. God saved you. If you're a Christian who's believed in Christ, God has saved you through the gospel in order to enable you to live a life that takes place inside the gospel and is centered on the gospel in every way. So with the time that we have this morning, what I want to do is to go over with you four beliefs of the Apostle Paul that serve to explain why he was so into the gospel as a Christian and why his life and ministry were characterized by gospel centrality. Four beliefs that we'll look at this morning that explains why Paul was gospel-centered in his life and his ministry. Number one, belief number one, is he believed that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. He believed that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. We see Paul stating this belief in a couple places in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, Paul says, For the preaching of the cross, that's the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says this again in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, literally into salvation to everyone who believes. Now, notice in these two passages that Paul refers to the gospel as the power of God. The gospel is not just a power of God, but the power of God. What this means is that the gospel is the ultimate location in which God's power resides and does its most amazing work. And just a silly uh, example, if I were come, uh, to come up to a man in this congregation this morning, let me pick on Luke here on the front row uh, and if I came up to Luke and said to him, Luke, you are a man, what would I be saying by that? I would be informing him that among the billions of men on the planet, I find that he legitimately can be classified among them as a man. He would probably wonder why I felt the need to inform him of this fact, but he would understand my meaning clear enough, right? But if I approached Luke and said to him, Luke, you are the man, that would be different, right? I would be telling him that of all the billions of men on the planet, I find him to be the ultimate man, amen? And the same is true here, essentially, with the Apostle Paul and the language that he's using in these two verses. When he calls the gospel the power of God, he is telling us that of all the demonstrations of God's power in the spiritual and material universe, the gospel is the ultimate location where God's power resides and does its most amazing work. And that ought to excite us. I know it does me 
because we see amazing demonstrations of God's power throughout the universe, do we not? Our sun alone is a ridiculous demonstration of the power of Almighty God. It's over a million kilometers in diameter with temperatures in its core that exceed 27 million degrees. That's hot. So hot that if I merely heated the tip of this pen that I'm holding in my hand, if I heated the tip of this pen to 27 million degrees, everyone in this room would die. Everyone in the city of Riverside would die from the heat emanating from the tip of this pen. Of all the rays that emanate in every direction from the sun in any given split second, less than one billionth of those rays actually enter the atmosphere of our tiny little planet Earth. Less than one billionth. Yet just those rays alone that enter our atmosphere provide the energy equivalent of 126 trillion horsepower of energy every split second. And that's coming from a sun that is 96 million miles away. So you might look at that and say, God, the sun sure is amazing. Surely the sun is the power of God, right? And God would say, no, the sun displays my power, but it's not the ultimate location where my power is displayed. And God would tell you what he's telling you through the Apostle Paul in the two passages that I have read to you, that the ultimate location where God's power resides is in the gospel. And he would tell you that if you want to experience the ultimate power of God, you will experience it in the gospel. He would tell us as a church that if we want to experience the power of God in this congregation and in our ministries, then we would want our lives to be infused with the gospel. He would tell us that if we want our lives to be infused with his power, then we will want to sing gospel and pray the gospel and celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ and preach it to the lost and to one another and to be preaching it to our own hearts as well. And notice in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, what the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for. Paul literally says, it is the power of God into salvation. In other words, the gospel has the power to generate movement in your life, to move you from where you are now and to bring you into the realm of salvation. If you're here this morning and you have never believed in Jesus, you have been missing out on this ultimate demonstration of the power of God. If you believe the good news of salvation through Jesus even this morning, you will experience the power of God to move you from where you are now, which is in the kingdom of Satan, and move you into this realm called salvation. And by the way, when Paul says it's the power of God literally into salvation, he means so much more than just getting you through the door of salvation. And if you want proof of this, you can write down the reference 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, where Peter undeniably is speaking to Christians, and he's telling Christians to long for the milk of the gospel word 
so that they literally might grow by it into salvation. And that same phrase is used there. Clearly, these readers of Peter's epistle are Christians who have already come through the door of salvation, but there were deeper places to go inside of the realm of salvation that they had not yet reached and grown into. And Peter is telling them that feasting on the gospel is what will get them there. So let's say it this way. The gospel is the power of God, which can move you into the realm of salvation. And then once you're inside of this thing called salvation, the gospel is the power of God to take you deeper and deeper into all things salvation. And so think about it this morning. What are, what are those things inside of salvation that you need? How about peace? How about a clear conscience or freedom from a besetting sin or power to forgive someone for a horrible wrong that they have done against you? How about transformation of life and the blessings of sonship and relationship with God? How about freedom to live and openness and transparency before God and others, freedom to face your sins and to repent of your sins with boldness, knowing that you are forever loved by Jesus. The list is endless, and it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ, or it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that can move you into these things as it moves you deeper and deeper into this realm called salvation. There's a second thing that Paul believed that serves to explain why he was so into the gospel and so centered on the gospel in his life and ministry. Number two, he believed that the gospel is for Christians too. He believed that the gospel is for Christians too. This is kind of a no-brainer, and yet a lot of times we act as if this is not the case. So let's belabor this point. Look more closely at the two verses that I read to you earlier. In Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God into salvation to whom? To everyone who is continuously believing, present tense. Everyone who is believing, that's Christian People, it is the power of God to everyone who is continuously believing. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us. Paul's including himself. He's known the Lord for decades. He's been a Christian for decades. And his Corinthian readers have known the Lord for years now. And he says, to us who are continuously being saved, it is, present tense, the power of God. So there are those, according to this verse, who are perishing. That's the unsaved. And there are those who are being saved. That's true converts to Christ. And Paul is telling us that the gospel is continuously the power of God for the ones who are being saved. In fact, I have no doubt that Paul would say, here's my testimony. I experienced the gospel as the power of God on the day of my conversion, and I am still experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ as the power of God taking me deeper and deeper into salvation day by day. It is because the gospel is the power of God for those of us who are being saved that Paul desired to evangelize Christian people. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 15, look at what he says in this verse. Paul speaks to the Christians in the church of Rome, and he says, so for my part, 
I am eager to preach the gospel to, literally, he's saying, I am eager to evangelize you who are at Rome. Certainly, Paul was anxious to go to Rome and evangelize the non-believers in the city of Rome, but in this verse, he specifically says that he was anxious, he was eager to evangelize the Christians who were in the church of Rome. In fact, Paul could not go to Rome at this point in time in order to evangelize them in person, so what does he do? He writes the book of Romans, and what is the book of Romans but the fullest and the most detailed explanation of gospel truth found anywhere in the New Testament. And it was written to Christians. And amazingly, even though Paul knows that he's going to, in this letter, share the details of the gospel with them and evangelize them by letter, he still says that he can't wait to come to Rome and evangelize them yet again in person. You observe Paul's passion for evangelizing believers in his other epistles also as he spends a huge amount of his time preaching gospel truth to his Christian readers. I mean, what is Ephesians 1, 2, and 3? It's all gospel being communicated to Christians. What is Colossians 1 and 2? It's all gospel being communicated to Christians. What is Romans 1 through 11? It's all gospel being communicated to Christians as Paul is unfolding the glories of the gospel to his Christian readers, evangelizing them. In the book of Romans, in Ephesians, and in Colossians, Paul spends the first part of each of those books immersing his readers in gospel truth before he delivers a single command to them regarding how to live their lives. And then you guys know the pattern. After presenting gospel truth, he then says, therefore, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, and therefore in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, and then begins to give them instructions on how to unleash the gospel and to live life consistently with the gospel. Why does Paul do this? Well, he does this because he believes that the gospel is the power of God into salvation as we have seen, but there's another reason. It's kind of the same reason, but worded in a slightly different way. This leads us to the third thing that Paul believed about the gospel that explains why he was so into the gospel and centered on the gospel in his life and ministry. Let's word it this way. Number three, he believed that the gospel has power to enrich and edify believers. He believed that the gospel has power to enrich and edify believers. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, Paul is speaking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. So these are not just Christian men, but mature Christian men who are leaders of others. And Paul says to them in Acts 20, 32, and now, he says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Notice what Paul does in this verse. He commends these mature Christian men to God. He also commends them to the word of his grace. What is the word of God's grace? It's the gospel. It's the message of God's grace to save sinners. And notice why he commends these mature Christian men to the word of God's grace. Speaking of the word of God's grace, he says, which is able, we could translate this, uh, which has the power. 
which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice the two things he says that the word of God's grace or the gospel has the power to do in the lives of these mature Christian men. Paul says that the gospel has the power to serve as a conduit for your full inheritance in Christ. And Paul also says that this word of God's grace has the power to build you up. The verb that is translated build up here is the Greek word oika demeo, oika demeo. Throughout the New Testament, this word is typically translated to speak of edification. And you must know that this is no lame word here. This is actually a very powerful word that is big enough to include the idea of radical transformation. Whenever you see the word edify or edification in the New Testament, understand that that word is big enough to include the idea of radical transformation. In fact, um, guess where the first place is in the Bible where the Greek word oikodomeo occurs for the very first time? It's in the Greek Septuagint of Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, where we are told in that verse that God put Adam to sleep, and then he took a rib from Adam's side, and he oikodomeoed that rib into a beautiful woman. That's serious edification, right? God edified a rib into a woman that blew Adam away. The way that this word is used in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, shows us that the word oikodomeo includes the idea of radical transformation. So here, here's the deal, guys. If, if God can take a rib from Adam's side and edify that rib into a beautiful woman, then imagine what he can do with you. Imagine what he can do with you. And Paul is telling you here in Acts 20, 32, that God does this edifying work in you through the word of his grace, which is the gospel. So think of all the ways that you need to be transformed. How many of you, just raise your hand, how many of you still have ways that you need to be transformed? Raise your hand. All right, most of you. Think about those ways that you still need to be transformed and then hear the Apostle Paul say to you, I commend you to the word of his grace. I commend you to the gospel which serves as the premium instrument through which God transforms you and edifies you into what he wants you to be. But in order for the gospel to do this work in you and in me, we, we must believe it. We must keep it at the center of our focus. We must sit down at the gospel table and feast upon the gospel each day. We must learn to think gospel and reason from the gospel to every area of our life in order to connect its power to every area of our life. This actually brings us to the fourth belief that Paul had about the gospel that serves to explain why he was so into the gospel and centered on the gospel in his life and ministry Let's word it this way. He believed that the gospel should be applied to every area of life. He believed that the gospel should be applied to every area of life. Think again about the pattern that is found in Ephesians, Colossians, and Romans. 
before Paul gives any counsel or commands regarding work and family and marriage and child-rearing, relationships with others, forgiveness, speech, citizenship, responding to wrongs, he first immerses his readers in gospel truth. And then he says, therefore, here's how to live that out. His pattern in these books shows that he believes that the gospel applies to everything in our lives. In these books, every command that Paul gives in every area of life was attached to the gospel in this overarching way, and then many times with great specificity. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul says to us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. You see what he's doing there? When he speaks to husbands in Ephesians 5.25, he says, husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying to husbands, he's saying, men, if you want to be a good husband to your wife, go to the cross and stare at what Christ did there. Become a student of that and then turn around and be that towards your wife. In the mind of Paul, the gospel had everything to do with being a good husband. I, I was sharing with <clears throat> the men at the men's barbecue uh, this summer that my own thinking on the relevance and the application of the gospel to all of life started to change uh, when we as a church began studying through 1 Corinthians about 20, 21 years ago. And as we were starting that series, I was talking on the phone with my younger brother who is a pastor on the East Coast and told him, hey, we're about to start working through 1 Corinthians. And he gave me some advice uh, he said, Milton, pay attention to what Paul does in this book. Notice how many times he goes back to gospel truth as he deals with the issues that were plaguing the Corinthian church. And so with that firmly in my head, as I began studying through the book and reading through it over and over again, I paid attention to that pattern. And let me give you just a few examples of the pattern that I saw. Um, for example, the Corinthians had some major defects in their beliefs about the physicality of our heavenly bodies in the afterlife. So how does Paul address that theological defect? Well, he starts with the gospel. In fact, listen to what he says as he begins to address their beliefs about the physicality of their bodies in the afterlife in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, keep in mind, he's going to address this theological problem, but it's how he starts that's striking. Here's how he starts. Verse 1, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. Literally, which I gospeled to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word I gospeled to you. And then verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Verse 5, and that he appeared. Verse 6, he appeared. Verse 7, he appeared. Verse 8, he appeared. And then Paul reasons from those gospel facts to the area where the Corinthians had the theological defect. And he shows them that if Christ indeed was physically 
raised from the dead, and if indeed we will be raised after the pattern of his resurrection, then that means that we too will have physical bodies in the resurrection. But Paul got there through the gospel, teaching them how to think gospel and then reason from the gospel to this area where they had the theological defect. In chapter 5, we see another example of Paul connecting the gospel to something that probably none of us would have thought to do without his help. In chapter 5, Paul brings up the fact that there was sin in the Corinthian church. A man was sleeping with his father's wife, and the church was tolerating this sin in their midst and allowing this man to remain a member of the church. And Paul essentially tells them to practice church discipline and to remove the man from their church. And he actually uses gospel truth to show them why they needed to do that. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, listen to what he says. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are, in fact, unleavened for Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed, unquote. There's the gospel truth. Paul is saying Christ, the Passover lamb, has been sacrificed, purifying you all and making you as a congregation unleavened bread for God's sacred feast. Therefore, if Christ through his death has made you a lump of unleavened bread, then how can you tolerate the leaven of sin in your midst? Why is Paul talking this way to the Corinthians? Because he doesn't just want the Corinthians to practice church discipline. He wants them to practice gospel-motivated church discipline. We see another example of this pattern in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, This is going to seem strange to you guys, um, but we have our own strange behaviors among professing Christians nowadays. Some of the Corinthians in the Corinthian church were engaging in sexual immorality with temple prostitutes at the local pagan temple. Amazingly, they thought that this was an acceptable thing for them to do because they viewed sex as just a body thing. And God doesn't really care about our bodies. They had bought into the dualistic notion that It's the spiritual realm that matters to God, but that which is physical doesn't really matter to God. So it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. And so they're going to the local temple and having sex with temple prostitutes. And if you were the Apostle Paul, how would you address that problem? Well, look at how Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 6.15. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? That's gospel truth there. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. What Paul is saying here when you read this passage in the context is basically, guys, when you are physically intimate with somebody, you are becoming one flesh with them. Hence, you are, as a Christian, taking your body, which is now a member of Christ, and you're bringing it into a one flesh union with a temple prostitute. How can you do this? He continues in verse 19, saying, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That's a gospel truth. Whom you have from God, that's a gospel truth. And that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. There's a fundamental gospel truth right there. Christ died for you, and he shed his blood and purchased you 
And that includes your whole being all the way down to your physicality. Therefore, Paul says at the end of verse 20, glorify God in your body because it belongs to him. We see here how Paul goes back to gospel truths and states those truths and then reasons from those truths to the ethical and the moral issues that the Corinthians were failing in. And it turns out, as you go through this book, that the gospel provides a whole lot of direction for all of these issues, including one's sexual morality. Our world today will say, hey, this is my body. I can do with my body whatever I want to do with my body. But a true Christian who's centered on the gospel thinks, no, my body is no longer my body. It belongs to Christ because through the cross, I have been bought with a price. And now my body is indwelt by the Spirit, so I will flee from immorality and I will glorify God with my body because that's what my Savior who purchased me tells me to do with my body. That's gospel thinking. Notice how Paul handles one more issue. In 1 Corinthians, the Corinthians were flaunting their Christian liberty, dining at pagan idolatrous temples and setting an example that was encouraging weaker Christians to go back into the temple restaurants for a meal and then to stumble back into their former life of idolatry. But the focus of the dining believers from the Corinthian church was, hey, I've got my liberty in Christ. I can do this, and it's okay, and I'm not going to give up my liberty in Christ for some weaker brother. But Paul reasons from gospel truth and shows them another way to think. In 1 Corinthians 8, listen to what Paul says, beginning in verse 10. He says, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining at an idol's temple, Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. You see the gospel truth there? And how Paul is applying that gospel truth? Paul is saying to the Corinthians, look at your brother in Christ. This is someone that Jesus died for. Jesus gave up his life for this brother to save him. And if Jesus was willing to give up his life for your weaker brother, then you ought to be willing to give up your precious little liberty to eat at a temple restaurant for the sake of that same brother. Do you see the pattern in all of these examples, this is Paul's pattern for everything. This is the essence of how he evangelized believers. To non-Christians, Paul would say Christ died and he was raised for you to have salvation from your sins. Therefore, believe in him and be saved. To Christians, Paul would evangelize them by saying Christ bought you with a price and he gave you his Holy Spirit who now inhabits your body. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Christ died for your weaker brother. He gave up his life for your weaker brother. You should therefore be willing to give up anything to serve the spiritual good of that same brother and not cause him to stumble. The list of examples in Paul's letters is endless. Paul believed that the gospel applied to everything. He spent his life and ministry articulating gospel truth and showing how that gospel truth applied to every area of people's lives. And here's why Paul was careful to do this. Because if it is true that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ with all that it contains, if it is true that this gospel is the power of God, then it would only make sense 
for Paul to want to make sure that he connected that gospel to every area of his readers' lives in order to bring the power of God into these areas. And we ought to want to do the same thing, right? Paul's life was all about the gospel. He wasn't just saved through the instrumentality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but he says that he was saved into the gospel. And he made the gospel once saved the basic orientation of his life and ministry. He spent his life thinking about the gospel, teasing out the ramifications of gospel truth to every area of life, and he invested himself in teaching others to do the same. He commended the gospel to believers, and he promised them the experience of God's power and transformation of life if they did so. And so I just want to ask you as we close this morning, is your life centered on the gospel? As a believer, is your life centered on the gospel in a conscious and deliberate way each day? Do you keep it in the place of first importance in your life and even in your ministry to others and in your parenting of your children? Does the word of Christ dwell richly inside of you? Do you preach the gospel to yourself each day? And do you make the gospel the north star by which you navigate your life? In my own life, I've, I've noticed that there's two different versions of Milton. Uh, there's the gospel mode version of me that I see manifested when I'm centered on the gospel and preaching the gospel to myself each day and believing it and letting it dwell richly within me. Uh, when I'm doing that and centered on the gospel in this way, I find myself being filled with hope and joy, and I have a whole lot of grace to give to others who may wrong me, and I have a tremendous amount of energy to put into ministering to other people. But when I'm not, even as a Christian, when I'm not centered on the gospel, I find myself inevitably becoming small-minded and thin-skinned and selfish and unbelievably petty. And I have very little, if any, grace to give to others. And what determines the kind of person that I'm going to be in any given moment, even as a Christian, is whether I am consciously centered on the gospel. And the same is true for you. Having believed in Christ, you want to move on from conversion to living a life of gospel centrality so that you might experience the transforming power of the gospel in your life from day to day. And here at Cornerstone, we're here to help you with that based on the powerful premise that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. Do you believe that? Let's go to the Lord and just ask him to help us as a church to be all about proving in our lives and our ministry this thesis to prove the truth of the statement that the gospel of Christ is the power of God. Lord, we come to you this morning and we're so thankful for the glories of the revelation of your word. We thank you, Lord, for the way you've worked in many of our lives and saving us. We can, many of us, think back to the moment when we heard the gospel being proclaimed of a Savior who stood ready to save us and who died and shed his blood so that we might be saved. And we responded to that message. But having believed that message and been saved, 
by you, Lord, through the instrumentality of this message, help us, Lord, to to live in the good of this message and to be centered upon this message and to invest ourselves with unfolding the goodness of it. This gospel, Lord, is ginormous. It's multifaceted. It is infinite in its scope, and all of us have so far to go in understanding the fullness of it and then applying it to every area of our life. And so help us to do this together in community with one another, Lord, that we might know in our walk and in our ministry the truth of the statement that this gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,